It's entitled The Invisible War. And we have seen that we are in a war. We can't necessarily see this enemy. It's not right in front of us. It's, it's one that comes in the deeper and more difficult places. Uh, last week we talked about our enemy, the devil, and the powers of darkness. And this week we're going to be talking about the world. Now, what is the world? And what does it mean? And how does it harm us? See, the world is something that's very imperceptible to most people. Uh, It's something that we can't necessarily see. It's not something that can necessarily hear. Uh, It's something that is prevalent and part of our culture, a little bit like carbon monoxide. Now, I'm reminded of when I was a little boy. I was playing hide-and-go-seek with my friends. And my sister's boyfriend had come over, and he had this, I think, 1978 yellow Chevy Silverado. And he had it parked outside, and he was waiting on my sister. And I decided, we were playing hide-and-seek with our friends, and I decided to hide behind his truck. And I remember sitting there right by the tailpipe, and I was young. I was a young boy. And I remember sitting going, wow, that smells good. And just started inhaling that from the tailpipe. And I started feeling sleepy. And next thing I know, um, I got found in hide-and-seek. It was by my mother. (laughs) And she grabbed me by the back of my collar and ripped me away. And she said, that can kill you. It's something that I, I didn't realize what it was, and she told me that's carbon monoxide. And now, as I've grown older, uh, you see and you, you understand that carbon monoxide is odorless, it's tasteless, it's very imperceptible. That's why it gets into our homes, and we have uh, carbon monoxide detectors, and it's usually by the areas which we sleep, to let us know, because we can't smell it, can't hear it, can't taste it, but yet it's deadly to each one of us. See, that's the way the world is. The world is something we can't see, per se, But it's a thought, it's a process, it's prevalent in every stream of society, and it is slowly killing the souls of many different Christians. I mean, as Christians, we do have three enemies. The world that we're talking about today, the flesh, the evil that indwells each one of us, and uh, the powers of darkness. And we have three allies, however. We have the church of God to come alongside us and help us. We have the Holy Spirit within us to counteract our flesh. And then we have angels that are battling in the heavenly places we're going to be learning about all of these. I mean, we've already talked about two. We're going to be talking about our allies in the next several weeks as well. But today we're going to be focusing on what the world is, how it affects each one of us, and how we can avoid the, the, the world from killing us. And so we do is we, we make sure that we go into the, the carbon monoxide detector of God's Word. It detects the carbon monoxide of culture in the world that comes to strangle and suffocate each one of us. And we let the Word of God breathe fresh air and the truth of who God is into our lives so that we might live according to His truth and we might avoid the pitfalls of the world. But before we go any further, let's pray for God's blessing on our message time. Father, we come before you humbly asking you to speak to us. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. And Lord, I pray today if there's someone here that doesn't know who you are, I pray, Lord, that the power of your spirit and the proclamation of your word might cause that veil that is keeping them from seeing you to fall, to be broken. They might see the light and life of Christ and might be embrace him and be saved. And Lord, for those, for those of us who are here today that have backslidden, that have been too flirtatious and trying to be friends with the world, Lord, I pray that you... Uh, You put the paddles of truth and shock us awake to the reality of who you are. Lord, let us not continue in our backslidden nature, but let us be awakened that we may not be foiled or be victims uh, of the evil one and what he has done and is doing in the world. And Lord, I pray that you touch us, draw us near to yourself, and help us to grow in the likeness and image of Christ for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Now, before we really get into this, we need to talk about some definitions. It's always very important to talk about what we, I mean, define what we're talking about. And before that, we need to understand what the Bible means by the world. Because the Bible uses the word world in different ways. Now, first of all, we, we can see as we explore these different definitions, uh, actually um, words that the Bible uses for that. Let's call that slide up. Um, we need to examine the words that the Bible uses to describe what the world is. First of all, it's the planet we live on. That's a given. I mean, anybody thinks about that, we should be aware of it. As Psalm 97.4 says, His lightnings light up the world, the earth sees and trembles. So you can see there's the world, light up the earth or uh, lights up the world. Secondly, it refers to the people who live in it. This is where we get John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the world. And he's not talking about physical planet. It's not uh, Mother Earth. It's not tree hugging. That's not what he's talking about. It's not, you know, good earth. Uh, let's be kind to it. I mean, yes, we are to be good stewards of all of God's creation. But it's not talking, uh, when it says, for God so loved the world, it's not referring to the planet, but the people therein. Um, and not only that, but it talks about the philosophy that fallen man lives by. And that's what we're talking about today. This philosophy, this program, uh, it is something that is evident within creation, um, and it's in the thought processes of man. It is what man values, what man esteems. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, it's this philosophical system, not something that you study in the philosophy department, but the values that men of this world aspire to. It is everywhere we turn. It's in our government. It's in our schools workplaces, homes, news sources. It is in our, uh, all over our entertainment. Now, scholar and biographer Ian Murray described worldliness as this. I'll show this to you. He said it's departing from God. That's basically what it is. It's trying to construct a world without God. It is a man-centered way of thinking. It proposes objective which demand no radical breach with man's fallen nature. It judges the importance of things by the present and material results. It weighs success by the numbers. He continues, it covets human esteem and wants no unpopularity. It wants to, do, it wants to go with the flow. It wants what everybody else wants. It knows no truth which is worth suffering. It declines to be a fool for Christ's sake. Worldliness is the mindset of the unregenerate. Very important. It is the mindset of the unregenerate and adopts idols and is at war with God. This is even prevalent within the church because there are unregenerate people within the church. And we will see this. And there will always be so until the end of time. But you're going to have people that claim to be Christians that will advocate things, sins, practices, habits that the Bible condemns. It's not about an opinion. It's not about a political system. It's not about any, any type of thought process except that which is departing from God. They do not want what God's Word says. So it is imperative that we always go back to the Word of God and see what it is telling us. And it's the construction of a world system. In, is, it's one that man has built apart from God. It's like the Tower of Babel, if you remember that. But these are individuals that wanted to do great things, but they didn't want God to be a part of it. And God sent, uh, sent different languages and separated them because they were trying to accomplish their purpose without God. And so we still see that going on today. Not God's purpose, but their purpose. They want a world without consequences, a world they can do whatever they want. C.J. Mahaney, uh, a pastor, um, leader, has said this, worldliness then is a love for this fallen world. That's what it is. It's the love of the thoughts, the processes, the entertainment, everything that this world values. 
It's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule and replaces it with our own. It is rejection of what God wants. It's doing what man wants. It elevates. It exalts our opinions over God's truth. It elevates our sinful desires for the things of this fallen world above God's commands and promises. Professor Joel Beakey put it this way. He says, The goal of worldly people is to move forward rather than upward, to live horizontally rather than vertically. They seek outward prosperity rather than holiness. They burst with selfish desires rather than heartfelt supplications. If they do not deny God, they ignore and forget him. Is this not something that we have going on today? And many in our churches, that people, I mean, we have this thing going on where people are like, I'll just take Jesus as a part of my life. The scripture is very clear. Jesus is our life, not a part of, but is. Colossians says that. When him, he who is our life appears, he is the essence of our life. Not just a part of it. Faith's just not an aspect as like, you know, I'll take the salad, but put the dressing on the side. I'll take, you know, I'll take Jesus and the church on the side, or I'll take life and I'll put Jesus on the side. That's not how it is. He is our life. If they do not deny God, they ignore and forget him, or else they use him only for their selfish ends. Worldliness is human nature without God. Now, remember that this, this can also take place in the church where leaders can do this very thing, be worldly and Christianize worldliness. They can say, this is what God wants you to have, and they're Christianizing, baptizing something that is worldly and putting a Christ label on it. And though they might claim to be Christians, they will be judged more strictly because of it. Because what they're doing is they're saying something that, they're saying that God said something he didn't, which is awful blasphemy taking his name in vain. It's not just saying a swear word. It's saying that God said something and he didn't. Do not add to the word of God. Let it stand on its own. Worldliness is human nature without God. See, worldliness is human nature without God. We've described it a little bit, but let's pause and define it. We need to employ a proper definition. Now, the scripture gives us a big picture of that in the passage we have today. We have the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride in life. Um, But I want to give you a very succinct definition that we can all memorize. Uh, It's it's not um, straight from the scripture. It's, uh, It's something for men, but I believe it's a great representative of what it's talking about. It's from David F. Wells, uh, was a professor of mine when I was in seminary, and uh, he put it this way, and I've shared this definition with you several times. The world is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. The world is anything that makes sin look normal. Now, we're not going to just look at little practices. Sometimes Christians are too myopic. And what they do is they just look at, okay, card, it, through time, there have been things that have been worldly. Going to movies, playing cards, dancing, this, that. And there was this list that they checked off. That was what, what worldly was, but they didn't have a definition for it. They had items to check it off. And we have to be very careful, very discerning. Because people get a little out of control when we're talking about the world. You can go one of two extremes. You can deny it at all, or you can be so consumed with it that it goes to the checklist. And and some Christians have erred on both sides over time, especially when you look at the turn of the 20th century when radio came out, that many Christians were instructed not to be a part of radio. Do you know why? Because Satan is the prince and power of the air. So you actually saw that philosophy. And so some people didn't go into that because they were afraid that that was a worldly practice. And I've been in churches where I've had some very strange definitions of worldly. Even growing up, I'm not that old yet, 
But even growing up, I remember uh, a, my, a grandfather who was pastoring a church, and they were debating. They were still using an outhouse. They were debating getting indoor plumbing because some people thought that the plumbing was worldly. If that's worldly, I'm worldly. Okay? We have to be careful of that. And that's not what worldly is. It's not one practice. It's, it's the pursuit. It's the thought process that shows itself in those things. So it goes back to the heart. That's what it goes back to. And it's anything that makes sin look normal, le- legitimizes it. You can see it all the time on television. We can see it in our culture. We can see it in our government where they say that certain things are okay, but the Bible condemns. So we have to go back to a higher authority. And that's God's authority as revealed in his word. It's anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. So we have to be very much aware of that. The world is anything that attempts to make sin look normal. Consider what we just had happen this past week. With the Supreme Court's ruling uh, about gay marriage being allowable, this is the spirit of the world. This is what John, and John Roberts, the dissenting judge, recognized what was going on. He said this, the majority's decision is an act of will, not legal judgment. The court invalidates the marriage laws of more than half the states and orders the transformation of a social institution that has formed the basis of human society for millennia. For the Kalahari Bushmen and the Han Chinese, the Carthaginians and the Aztecs, just who do you think we are? It's the spirit of the world. It's a thought process which we have that is going on in our world today. And as Christians, whenever we speak out against that, I guarantee that persecution is quick to follow. And it's going to be accelerated even now. Um, as even I told my daughter that earlier, I was like, after that came out, I said, there's a possibility that you could see your father in prison. We're in that part of our world today. So, We've gone beyond what God has ordained. And this presupposes several things. And it could be with any sin, by the way. It can be with anything, not just that. It can be gluttony. It can be uh, alcoholism. It can be drug addiction. Um, It's catering to it and legislating it. And it's the spirit of the world. But see, all of the thought processes that are behind people that want to legitimize and legislate, there is one part that has been forgotten in the midst of this, that God's gospel changes hearts. Here's what I mean by that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Uh, and you'd, I would encourage you to turn there. That's page 955 in your pew Bibles, or if you have a large print one, that is in 1214. Because, see, what presupposes all these things that are being legislated is that God can't change a heart. People saying that this is normal, but it's not. No one in the history of the world has said it was normal until recently. See, when God's grace appears, it transforms a person. We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. As Paul, by the Spirit, writes, he goes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is what you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God changes hearts. Some people think that we want to legitimize something. It's, it's who, you know, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. But the Bible says no. Don't be deceived. 
I'm reminded of the story of Rosaria Butterfield. I don't know if anybody ever heard of Rosaria Butterfield. Um, and uh, she was a, uh, uh, a professor um, in, a, in a university, and she was also a practicing uh, lesbian. And uh, she was a lesbian professor who had subscribed all of the agenda of the day. She lived with her partner. She hated Christians because of what she saw at Christians holding Bible verses and scorning and doing not very nice things at gay pride events um, that many Christians had picketed. However, she'd met a pastor named Ken and his wife, Floyd, who did not mock. He engaged her in conversation, meals, got to know her invited her to his home to have dinner. She was reluctant at first, but convinced herself that she could do it in the name of research. And oddly enough, she had become friends with Ken and his wife because they had entered her world. They would entered in discussion with her. They talked with her. And what amazed her, uh, not just about them, their love, was how Ken prayed at the meals. By the way, you're just praying at a meal is a testimony. And she said that his prayers were intimate different than what she'd heard. wasn't just going through the motion, but he talked to God as if talking to a friend. And yet she learned a lot. She, struck, she was struck by the fact that he confessed his sin right in front of her. And she, 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 he thanked God for all things. She saw that his God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. They looked at her as a person, not a project. This pricked her interest, so she picked up a Bible and started reading The Way a Glutton Devours Food. She read it many times in her first year in multiple translations, and that's when a change started to occur because the Bible changes hearts. And she describes it. She says, I was at a dinner gathering with my partner. I mean, we were hosting it, and my transgendered friend, Jay, cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine and said, This Bible reading thing is changing you, Rosaria. He warned. She warned. With tremors, I whispered, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we're all in trouble? Jay exhaled deeply. Rosaria, she said, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God would heal me, but he didn't. If you want, I will pray for you. I continued reading the Bible all the while, fighting the idea that it was inspired, but the Bible got to be bigger inside, inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. The image that came in like waves of me and everyone I loved, sorry, the image that came in like waves of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited it into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the costs, and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world. One Lord's Day, Ken preached on John seven seventeen. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine in the New King James Version. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of life, understanding came before obedience. And I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not one being judged. But the verse promised understanding after obedience. I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view 
or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed long into the unfolding of a day. Of day, When I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible. I wondered, am I a lesbian? Or has all this been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will have God? Who will God have me to be? Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this world, in this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make my, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. See, God had saved her, but he didn't leave her there. He transformed her from the inside out. He took her out of the life transformed her from the inside out, replacing her sinful desires with holy ones. That was years ago. Now the marks of the grace grace and the power of the Spirit are evident in her life. She left her lifestyle, ended up, just grew in grace and understanding of what God had made her to be. She ended up getting married to a man, and now he is the pastor of the First Reformed Presbyterian Church of Durham. She believed the Word of God and the Savior of the world met and transformed her. That's the gospel. See, we have a definition of worldliness, but let's identify its dimensions because it's not just there. It's everywhere. Identify its dimensions. World can worldliness be seen in our lives? First of all, we can see that it's found in our attitudes. Let's go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world. We have a command here. It's an imperative, present imperative. It's active, not now. Not, not, not that you never have loved it, but right now, in the present time, do not love the, the world or the things in the world. Notice what the world is. He has three, it's threefold. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. It's getting what we want when we want it. It's doing everything in our power to fulfill our sin or the sins of others. The pride of life is the bragging about who we are and all we have. It's an attitude of rebellion of life without God. If we have this, we have to be very, very careful. If we try and say that God's word is wrong or that God doesn't think of something that clearly is named as sin, then the, God's word is not in you. You may have your name on a church roll, play on the worship team, homeschooled your kids. You can be a president of a domination. You can do great miracles, but if you don't have Jesus truly and do what he says, then you really don't have Jesus. Matthew chapter 7 says it very, very well. and It's on page 812 in your pew Bibles. But Jesus is speaking, and he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, if people who boasted of doing great miracles casting out demons and who who did mighty works aren't getting into the kingdom, what makes you think that you who are living in a state of sin are getting in? I don't believe that we understand the gospel. 
The gospel is, by its nature, transformative. Yes, we need to believe in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, but it's belief in action. If we do not repent, then we truly do not believe. See, worldliness is seen not just in our attitudes and our thoughts toward God, but it's seen in our appetites and what we consume. And I'm not talking just about hunger. I'm talking about our fallen passions within us. Look at verse 16 of 1 John chapter 2. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. I want to see it strong desire. Uh, that's what we have here. Where he says the desires of the flesh. It's strong desire, lust, passion. The word for flesh could refer to the fallen human nature in general, to a disposition of hostility towards God. These are appetites to, uh, um, appetites to gratify our sinful nature. As James chapter 1, verse 14 through 15 says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's our natural appetites that are left unchecked. And they are shameful because they're not from the Lord. They are from our sinful flesh. This is where our co- kinds of sins come in. And, I, and our world tries to trump some of them, calling some of them normal. And that's a problem. When a sin is no longer considered to be sin, there we have a massive problem. See, God desires us to know and be able to speak against sin and shameful appetites. So we have the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. This is the idea of coveting. And then we, have, uh, we, we see what we want and we go get it no matter what it is. Then there's the pride of life. The idea is boasting and arrogance. It's the, uh, life here is the means by which life is sustained and the manner in which that life is spent. It's a person of how proud what they have and what they do. And it's all about their attention. This is the person that is so full of themselves. They are arrogant and they want to brag about it to everybody else. And they want everyone to esteem them really high. Not in who they are in Christ, but for all the accomplishments that they have. That is, is from the world. When we, when we talk about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, we can see that we are referring to something that James chapter 4 talks about. It's loving the world, being friends with the world. I want you to turn with me to James chapter 4. This is a great passage that's in page 1012. And I want you to keep it there for a bit because we're going to park on this for a moment. In James chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself God's enemy, an enemy with God. Now, it's not just about what we have, but what we go after. See, it can be found not just in our appetites, but our ambitions. They fight and quarrel because what they want, this is their ambition in life. They will do anything to get it, to climb the ladder, to bring other people down so they can bring themselves up. It's in their ambitions. And not only that, but in our allegiances. Our allegiances. I want to go back. Look at James 4 again. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The idea is being a friend, being a companion with, wanting to spend time with. The idea is you love the world. You want to be a friend with the world. The only problem is, is that the world is God's enemy. And so by saying that you're going to be friends with the world, you're saying that you are enemies with God. You're saying, well, no, I want to be both. 
Well, it's like saying to someone in World War II that had their whole family exterminated in a concentration camp that, that you're, are, you're seeing them, you love them, but yet you're going to go out to and eat with Adolf Hitler. That's what it's saying. It's that type of contrast. It's saying that you cannot be friends with the world and friends with God. If you're going to be friends with the world, you are God's enemy. You cannot have your feet in both worlds. It is impossible. Completely impossible. And we see people all the time, especially in churches, that have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and they think they're great. And when judgment comes, you're going to find out where you really are. That's the reality. That's something that I don't glory in, but I, I fear for. I fear for the people that sit in these chairs each week that are holding on and becoming such friends with the world. And then they are going to stand before God thinking they're fine, And they're going to see the reality that they really don't know who Jesus is. We cannot be friends. We cannot be aligned with the world. I mean, why? Why? Why is this such a big deal? Because Jesus, I mean, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 through 5, we see that, uh, uh, excuse me, that all of the world, excuse me, not 1 John chapter 5, We see that all of the world lies in the power of the evil one. But Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Actually, it's 1 John 5, 19. That the whole world is under the power of the evil one. But Jesus says this in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations, but take heart. I have overcome it. I have been crucified to the world. You know, the Bible says that. That we've been crucified to the world and the world to us. Through Christ. Why do we pretend to continue to be, try to be friends with it? We're to be dead to it, and yet we still take in, I mean, especially in entertainment. We take in all of these sinful shows and movies that display some of the most awful things. Oh, it's not a big deal. It's a question of Christian freedom. Seeing someone naked on the screen is not essence of Christian freedom. It's not. Seeing someone blaspheme God's name as a means of entertainment on your movie. What would you tell Jesus? Hey, I paid eight bucks for it, Lord. Come on. It's okay to see this. It's all right. It's not that big a deal. It's a big deal. They are blaspheming God's name, and you're paying them to do it so you can be happy. Think about that. That's what it is. That's what the scripture is saying, that we're being friends with the world by allowing that to occur, by just sitting there docile and letting it, uh, just sitting back and letting them dictate to us. And you're paying them to blaspheme your Lord. Jesus says in his word that he says, but take heart, I have overcome it. See, through him we are overcomers. We're not to cater to it anymore, but we're to find victory over it. First John chapter 5. And that victory is yours, by the way. It's each one of us who claim Christ as Lord and Savior. That victory is our victory through him. As First John chapter 5, verse 4 through 5 says on page 1023. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. If you are born of God, you will overcome. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. It's by our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes? You can't overcome the world unless you believe. Do you believe? What do you really believe? Don't say it with your mouth. Show it by your life. What do you believe? What do you believe? 
I heard a man once say that he could tell a man's faith by what he laughed at and what he cried for. That's very true. Find out where your faith is. See, ultimately, worldliness is about seeking the world's approval. About seeking the world's approval. We want to be accepted. We want people to like us. We don't want to experience discomfort. We don't want to be labeled. We don't want to be subject to public shame as dictated by the crowds. And the problem is that we have feared man more than God. And we wanted the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We must consider carefully the choices in the life that we have before us. If we want God's approval, then we need to say no to the world. But if you want the world's approval, go right ahead. However, I want you to realize what you're choosing. Temporary pleasure for the sake of eternal pain. See, Moses knew this choice he had to make when he was faced with the approval of the Egyptians or of God. And in Hebrews chapter 11, you can turn there if you want to. If not, I'll just read it to you. But it's Hebrews chapter 24 through 26. And the scripture says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We need those individuals, just like in the New Testament times, where the disciples would suffer and be beaten for the glory of God, and they considered it an honor to be so. Do you consider it an honor to be maligned or beaten for the name of Christ, or do you try to shun it with all your power? I'm not saying you go out and seek it, because sadomasochist. I'm saying that you... You go out and you be faithful in the proclamation. Living life before the audience of one, not the audience of several. Now, why do we talk about this? Why do we talk about the world in such stark terms? See, if we're to find victory in this battle, then it requires us recognizing its dangers. See, the, the world does several things to us. First of all, it stunts your spiritual growth. We see this in the church in Corinth. They were looking for a worldly wisdom. They had a worldly sorrow. And Paul's saying that you need to press on to spiritual maturity, but I can't speak to you very well like that right now. Because you're infants. You've been stunted. You've cared more about the things of this world than you have about God. And you're ineffective. You need to repent and get back to it. Not only does it stunt your spiritual growth, but it really shouts to God that you hate him. Not just says to it. It's you shout to God that you hate him. As James 4 says, it is actively hostility. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It is hatred toward him. It shouts to God that you hate him. Now, it's so serious. Worldliness is so serious because Christ is so glorious. And if Jesus died to set us free of the things of this world that we might be crucified with it, why do we think that we can side with it if he died to set us free from it? Why why do we do that? I mean, worldliness is so serious because Christ is so glorious. Worldliness stunts our growth, shouts to God that we hate him, and ultimately shipwrecks our faith. It shipwrecks our faith. I'm reminded of Demas. Demas was a companion of Paul. He ministered to Paul. He was present with Paul when Paul wrote uh, Colossians, when he wrote Philemon. Apparently, Demas was familiar to the Colossian Christians that were there, and he'd been an active minister with him. Paul says, I send you greetings as does Demas. But then we get this very awful judgment or statement about Demas' life in um, I think it's in 2 Thessalonians or, uh, no, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, page 996. But just listen in, it's a short verse if you want to. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. What a damning statement. He was so in love with this present world, he couldn't take the price of it, and he shipwrecked his faith because of it. He showed that he really wasn't a believer. 
to begin with. Demas is one of the most shocking characters in all of Scripture. He'd been a companion of Paul, and here he was deserting him. See, how does this apply to us today? I mean, why is this such a big deal? Not only is it because, I mean, as we saw before, worldliness is so serious because Christ is so glorious. And those who have been seduced by the world to believe that they can have one foot in the church and one foot in the world, I fear for most. Those who believe that sin is okay, no matter what society, if society says it's okay, then go ahead and do it. They really don't know God. They have become the victim, victim of the philosophy of the world. They have no, dea, no idea of the gospel of Christ and, and have looked at a cultural appeasement and acceptance and have lost the gospel of Christ. And that's not all. There are so many that want fame, fortune, and acceptance from this world. They want the world's approval, and they'll do anything to get it. But see, what worldliness really is, is worship, which is idolatry. As the famed novelist David Foster Wallace noted in his commencement to the 2005 Kenyon College graduating class, I want to share this quote with you. He said this, everybody worships, every single person, every man, woman, boy, and girl worships something. The only choice we get is what we, what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. See, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious, they're default settings. See, by nature, without Christ, we are idolaters. In our fallenness, we are idolaters. We put ourselves at the idol of our, or at the throne room of our hearts, and Jesus has to be there, and we have to do this daily. This is a daily activity. I like how John Piper has said, he goes, I have to, to recommit myself every day and die to the world. So it's not just a, yes, faith is a one-time thing, but daily faith, living by faith, is an active thing. Worldliness is a default setting that we're born with, and we must learn to defend against it. We must learn to defend against it. First of all, we need to know this. We need to love God more than man. You've got to love God more. If you love something more, then you will brave danger to do it. I think of, a, of a, a parent, and they see that child run out to go grab a ball, and a car's coming. That parent will run everything in their power to go stop that car. Because though fear is there, the love that they have is greater than the fear. When you have a love for Christ, it trumps your fear. And though it may not seem like it, the more that we learn to walk with Christ and learn who he is, that love will help trump our fear. The problem is, for many of us, we don't have a great love. We need to grow in our understanding of love. And in order to do that, that requires us to learn what is pleasing in God's sight. You can't learn and grow in love until, I mean, you can't really love God more until you really learn who he is. And that requires reading the Bible. You need to read the word of God. The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. You need to read the Word and let the Word read you. Start off in in one of the Gospels and read a little bit at a time. Read 1 John. Read James. Don't start in Leviticus. 
Okay? Start someplace where you know that God's going to, and God's going to speak to you through that. Learn what is pleasing in God's sight. And then leave behind what is passing away. As we see in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, and the world is passing away. It's passing away. This world is not our home. It's not our home. I was reading today in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's not in your notes, but I was so touched by it. For it talks about how we carry this treasure in jars of clay. And this light momentary affliction that we're going through right now is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. This world isn't our home. And I'm reminded of that each day. It's not our home. Leave behind that which is passing away. That's what we need to do. As Jesus has said, he mentioned in John 12, 43, because many people, though, they don't realize that, and they love the glory that comes from man in this world rather than the glory that comes from God. Now, I want to look at the second part of verse 17. But whoever does the word of God, will of God abides forever. See, it's the people who do God's will that will abide forever, and that means becoming an enemy of the world. That means we need to live for that which is permanent. We have people talk about this all the time. Last night, I was, uh, read an article about Kobe Bryant, the basketball player for the Los Angeles Lakers, and they had interviewed him, and they said, why don't you have very many friends? You don't have very many friends. You don't have a lot of friendships on your team. And he goes, friends come and go, but banners hang forever. And he met championship banners. And I thought to myself, you know, basketball's not that old, and it's probably not going to be around for eternity. <laughs> People will be. I'm not talking about just being a friend here, but I'm talking about sharing the truth of who Jesus is. To living for that paper or that cloth that are hanging from a raptors that will be destroyed one day. What a terrible thing to live for. When he gets into the glory, what did you do for a living? I played a game. I entertained. And I got the thing in the rafters, but I did nothing for God. I had the crowds. I had thousands of people listening to me, millions even, but nothing for God. We need to live for that which is permanent, that which will endure forever, and that is the will of God. As C.T. Studd once said, one life will soon be passed, only what is done for Christ will last. I want to end with some questions to consider. First of all, maybe you're here today, and I have, to, I have a question for you. Does God still convict you of your sin? Or have you so seared your conscience that you can't hear God's word any longer? That you have capitulated and compromised so much with culture that you want to do everything in your power to remove the word of God from your life? Then you're in trouble. You're in the danger zone. If you're not feeling God still convict you of your sin, then you need to pray that God gives you the gift of tears to see who he really is and who we are in light of him. Secondly, do we, does God approve of what you're doing right now in your life? If Jesus were sitting there with you, and we have to remember that Jesus is there with us, does he approve of what you're doing, your entertainment choices, how you spend your money, what your ambitions are, what you're looking at online, how you talk to people, how you engage, how you raise? Is he, is he there? Does he approve of what you're doing? Or are you being so worldly that you know you're just avoiding him? Does he convict you of sin? Does he approve of what you're doing? And last of all, has he told you that something needs to change? Then you need to do it. It goes beyond just being convicted. It goes to action. And if God is telling you to do something to change it, you need to do it. Just like Jesus said, when something causes you to sin, I mean, what are we supposed to do? We get rid of it. I mean, he says, he talks about, 
you know, cutting off one's hands. Uh, it's a hyperbole. It's an intentional overstatement saying the serious nature that we need to deal with worldliness. Why? Because it's deadly. You wouldn't tolerate carbon monoxide in your home. Even if the detector's going off, you need to act. And if you don't act on it, it's going to kill you. The same with worldliness. It will suffocate your faith and make you ineffective. The choice is clear. There's no neutral party. If we want to avoid worldliness, we have to mature in our faith. We can't remain where we are. We must study the Word of God and learn what it says so that we can progress and grow into Him who is our life. Let's do it. And then remember, the last words I want to conclude with today are from the martyred missionary Jim Elliott who lived this truth out. He said, He was no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. This world is passing away. Give it up. Don't hold on to it. Give up what you cannot keep in order to gain what we cannot lose. Maybe you're a person here today that says, I've been holding on to the world and I have not had Jesus. I want to know him. Then I invite you to receive him by faith. The scripture is clear that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That God will transform you from the inside out. I didn't say that you're not going to die daily. He delivers from the power of sin, but we have to learn die, die daily to that presence of sin that's still there. So we need to remember that. And if you're a person that is backslidden and you know that, I pray that you pray along with me that God would convict us, we repent wholeheartedly, and then take action, removing those things from our life that are keeping us from seeing truly who he is. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence knowing that we are all sinners. Lord, knowing that each one of us has sin and sinful desires that we believe are natural in and of ourselves. But Lord, you have shown us within our word how to, within your word, how to put those sinful desires to death. And Lord, may we do so. Lord, we know that Satan takes the, is a, is a fisher of men just like you are. He always tries to mimic you. And he takes the hook of the world and baits it with our flesh that we might take a bite. And Lord, may we recognize his sinful devices and strategies and schemes. May we turn away from them. May we avoid them. May we pray as the Lord's prayer says, Lord, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Lord, we are so grateful that you have been victorious, that you have overcome the world. And though this world with devils filled might rage, Lord, we know that your word will stand firm and that you, you will show yourself in all of your glory to reign manifestly in our world. And Lord, we long for that day, but we're also fearful, knowing how prone each one of us are to doing evil and to love the world. Lord, please forgive us of our sin. We know that you are the God of hope. Lord, forgive us for our choices in entertainment or what our ambitions have been or how our attitudes have been or the things that we have looked at within this world that have kept us from seeing truly who you are. Lord, please, we come before you knowing that we have an advocate who is able to identify with us in our sinful state because he overcame sin in the world. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus and what he has done and what he is doing in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you purify us, you help us to keep a short account of sin, and help us to do what you want us to do, that your glory might receive, your name might receive great glory. So Lord, bless us, use us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.